How are you? Hey, Katrina. Good, good. So uh, just a little bit busy, and uh, I'm myself actually uh, also working on some, uh, you know, stretching a carbon nanotube in, in computers right now. <laughs> I mean, right now. Oh wow! Really? That's so cool. Just so interesting. With the computers. Hi, Artemis. Um, I hope I'm saying your name right. How are you today? Uh, to unmute is all the way on the bottom right. There's a little microphone. Yep. Oh, can you hear me now? Yes. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Mm. How do I say your name right? Could, could you? Uh, actually, you said it perfectly before. Artemis is, is, is exactly oh. it. But uh, yeah, thanks for for organizing this. I, and I tried not to join too early because you mentioned maybe people don't want to hear the the preparation part before we actually get started. So I tried to keep that to a minimum. That's perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I tried to open up later too. Like I used to open up like fifteen to ten minutes before, but that was way too long, I think. But now I try ten to five minutes. So yeah. Mm. Yeah, I hope you had a great week. Happy Friday, everyone. <laughs> we survived. Yes, we survived. Exactly. We have a long weekend here. Um, here in the US, it's um, Columbus Day. A lot of companies don't don't close, but federal and you know, like, and um, schools they still close. I think mm. the ki my kids' school or New York City, they changed it to Indigenous People Day, the title of the ah. day. I don't know if that's anywhere else already, but they're trying to change the, the holiday to Indigenous People Day. So Interesting. I've heard about that a few years ago. I didn't know that... Uh... I wasn't sure how, how well implemented it is. It was. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, it's the for at this school where my kids are. It's the first time I heard it when my older son was in school. It was still Columbus Day, so. Yeah, I I like that better. Yeah, I think I think I, I like the the change to the indigenous people. I think it puts the, the focus on on something that's a bit more more critical in the history. But the problem is that the the word is too long, so it needs to be. If there's a, a synonym that's much shorter, that would work a little better. Yeah, that's true. I agree. The word is a little bit long. <laughs> that's true. We have to think about something more attractive. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, Frank just was telling me what he is currently working on. Um, meet Frank. He he's one of our um, moderators. He's um, he, he's an engineer, right, Frank? So what were you working on right now? I oh, I'm just uh, happily reporting that I finally get time get. Uh, around to learn some uh, 
molecular dynamics and uh, trying to follow some uh, kind of instructions and uh, building a system mimicking the engineering project that we worked on earlier, uh, putting, uh, adding um, uh, nano, uh, uh, carbon nanotubes to, into uh, plastics, uh, see if what, what, what kind of uh, interesting things uh, coming out, you know. So right now I'm basically uh, stretching it, uh, 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 trying to pull, pull, uh, uh, you know, to do some kind of a straining and see uh, uh, if, you know, anything that uh, would be useful uh, for our, but uh, usually I think the simulation doesn't, you know, is, is, is good for visual though. That, that's uh, so far that I, I, my impression, yeah. Oh, that sounds exciting. Actually, we love MD people. Uh, we've had a collaboration with molecular dynamics people to look at uh, DNA wrapping on the nanotube. Um, it was, at least uh, for the stuff that we were doing, it was very intensive. So they did not like collaborating with us because I, well, just in general, because just getting the DNA, there's so many bonds, so many uh, atoms to, to simulate that. It takes a long time just to get the very basic energy minimized state. Uh, so it was, um, so we really try to look for MD people. So, so it's really exciting to, to see actually that at least nanotubes didn't scare away too many uh, molecular dynamics uh, folk in, in the field. Yeah, I, I'm, 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 I found this uh, very exciting. Uh, because uh, uh, molecular dynamics, unlike you know the uh, more quantum type of, uh, th this is a, a very somehow uh, approachable in a way that uh, you can you know the the, the menu and uh, everything is uh, is very well documented. So for me, I'm, I'm no nowhere near uh, as an ex expert, but uh, I found just uh, very exciting and learning this stuff. Yeah. Uh, our system is small, and at this point, it's very kind of a pilot project. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can start. Ooh, that was a nice chat to <laughs> get over the waiting time. Um, so welcome everyone to Science Society, and a special welcome to Adamis um, Bogosian. Um, and before we start, let me give you a little bit of um, information um, so you get to know our guest speaker a little bit. Um, um, Adamis did her bachelor um, in chemical engineering at the University of Michigan in Arbor and minor in mathematics. And um, she then did her PhD in chemical engineering at MIT the Massachusetts Institute of Technology with a minor in material science and engineering and electrical engineering. And then she did her postdoc at the Department of Chemical Engineering at Caltech at the California Institute of Technology. And um, she now um, has been appointed a, um, assistant professor at the Institute of Chemical Sciences and Engineering of the Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne in Switzerland. 
and um, she um, she does um, she continues her research um, her career um, there, uh, implementing a highly interdisciplinary approaches to address fundamental challenges and uh, developing novel technologies that exploit the synergy between nanotechnology and synthetic biology. Um, her focus points in the field of optoelectronics and protein engineering, and she contributes um, new biological and biochemical methods for the production of durable hybrid nanomaterials for energy and biosensing applications. Um, it's such an honor to have you here, um, Artemis. Your work is so interesting. And um, before we start, we usually ask a couple of interview questions. So um, how did you um, find that you want to pursue like a career or life in science and engineering? Was it something you always wanted to do or was it a class or a teacher, a book? It kind of inspired you to go in that direction. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Katerina. And actually, the honor is all mine to to be here. Um, as to how I got here, uh, so actually for me, I was I was lucky. For me, uh, math, science, engineering was something. All the stars aligned in the sense that it was something that I really liked. Um, something that I ended up being okay at, at least, and. Um, and something that where I had an environment that was very supportive um, of that kind of direction. Uh, I think for me, to be honest, uh, even at a young age, so I really liked math because um, my memory was never that great. I always tend to forget things. And what I liked about math was it was not as much uh, memorization. So if I get a math problem, for example, on an exam, or usually if I'm very nervous, I might forget something. But with math, um, when I'm giving some, given some sort of problem, everything I need to solve it is there. It's it's not really you memorize something. So I've always had liked that a lot. And, and my favorite was kind of solving math problems where I'd get something really um, where I could spend forever on and then I could figure it out. And that aha moment just got me really excited. Uh, my interest in, in sciences actually was also just more along the lines of technology. Oh, this is a cool invention. Why don't people do this? And then I realized at some point I need to understand science to understand how it works. And actually, I think it was not until much older that I started to like uh, a little bit solving science problems because especially in, in chemistry and physics where similar to math at, at the more advanced levels, the problems you solve are more less memorization and more problem solving. So, so for me, it was just something that, that I liked. And um, I also had a very, my family was very supportive. And you could even see even to this day, the research that I'm doing uh, takes a lot of inspiration also from, from my parents. Um, you know, my, my mother was always a, had a green thumb. Uh, she could grow an entire garden out of cement. Uh, and, and my father was also an electrician. He, he could rewire an entire building in his sleep. And, and then you'll see here in my talk, uh, the research is, is about, um, electrifying photosynthesis, taking, making electricity out of, out of photosynthesis, which is what plants do. And um, so it worked out, as I mentioned, it was always something that I liked. I had a feeling this was something, you know, at a young age that this was something that I wanted to do. Of course, like anyone, I had my doubts, will I find a job? Am I good enough for this? 
but uh, eventually, after a series of decisions, I, I ended up here. Wow, that is fascinating that you really combined the, the passions of your family together into one. That's, um, that's kind of a beautiful story. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, and um, you, you already kind of answered like how you went <clears throat> into the specific field. And uh, for this project, is there maybe a backstory around the project? Was it maybe really easy to get funding? Were people saying, oh, are you crazy? <laughs> or, um, or was it was something did something surprising happen um, while uh, doing this project? Uh, so this project was a roller coaster. <laughs> um, from the beginning, actually, uh, so this general direction of living photovoltaics was actually something that, that during my faculty interviews I had also proposed. Um, and uh, some of the feedback, so you know, I, I had some offers and I didn't get some offers, and, and the ones that didn't give the offer in the end, some of the feedback I got was that it was too high risk. Um, so that, that was definitely, and one of the things I was fortunate is actually we started doing this uh, project and was also getting funding. Um, so related to this project, but I won't be discussing so much is bioengineering, um, making living photovoltaics from bioengineered materials. And actually that, I think if I had any other circumstances, it would have been um, difficult to do because I don't, I'm not really a bioengineer. Um, but the environment that I've been placed in here allowed me to find the funding for this project to pursue this research. Uh, so I, I, I got very fortunate um, in that direction. And even during the project, so I'll be mentioning at some point we had, I had even given up. And actually my, my PhD student was a superhero and managed to figure out something to uncrack something to get it to work. Uh, so that little that little detail I'll, I'll, I'll discuss during the, the presentation. But yes, yeah, so definitely from the onset, it was an uphill battle. We knew it was going to be a tough project. Um, and even the paper, as, as you could see from the paper, the submission date to the acceptance dates, we had a, our laboratory got shut down during the time we had to regrow the culture from scratch. Um, and all this compounded to, to this very multidisciplinary work that you end up seeing today uh, that you could for fortunately fine on, on uh, nature nanotechnology. Well, I'm glad you you stayed persistent. Um, we kind of hear it a bunch of times uh, from our guest speakers that, um, you know, they had struggled, they, they struggled, um, and you kind of hear it from really cool projects that they struggled. So. I hope there will be more funding for projects and not pretend high risk grants, you know. <laughs> so, well, that's all worked out and everyone, the presentation has been on top of the room. Please uh, go to the link to follow the presentation and Artemis, the status is yours. Thank you. Great. So can people uh, download the the uh, PDF right now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They, they they can click on it and see it. Yep, thank you. Okay, so I'll go through. Uh, so I'll go through the, the slides, uh, but I'm going to assume that some of you are like me and sometimes you just like listening to things while you're doing something else, maybe driving or, and so I'm also gonna try to make this accessible to those who just like to, to listen to, to the discussion and uh, give a 
overview of what, what each slide is. Um, so uh, as mentioned, so this presentation, uh, I was going to discuss more the most recent work that came out um, that is basically the idea of using nanobionic cells for living photovoltaics. Uh, so this is a, a bunch of buzzwords, but hopefully at the end of our discussion, you have a very clear idea of what exactly we did. Um, so that's the, the kind of the introductory slide. So on slide two, before I talk of some science, I wanted to first give acknowledgments. So slide two has the um, all the team that has made this possible. And you can see, you know, our, our team is quite, uh, both in the picture, but also in the lab, they're quite anti-disciplinary. They don't follow the rules. Uh, we have biologists, physicists, uh, food scientists, even aerospace engineers working in the lab side by side. And this uh, diversity has allowed us to tackle problems from a very different perspective. And so the whole crux of our lab is taking a non-disciplinary approach to try to solve problems that are currently limited by conventional disciplinary techniques. And this is the idea behind the nanobio interfaces. Can we interface artificial materials and biological materials and couple them in a manner that could offset each of their respective disadvantages? And uh, this, heart, I, this paper basically captures that essence of combining the advantages of nanomaterials with the advantages of biological materials to enable new technologies. So uh, slide number three. So this slide just has a picture of just a bunch of beautiful cyanobacteria, algae, diversity. They exist. We see them in flasks. We see them in ponds. Uh, we see them in lakes. And so the idea behind these pictures is to give inspiration as to why do we want to make a living photovoltaic? Um, so if you look at when you think of photovoltaic, the first thing that comes to mind is probably these little devices that you see on the rooftops of, of buildings. They're static devices. Um, so one of the disadvantages, a dirty secret in, in the photovoltaic community is although this is certainly green energy and a step forward, especially uh, compared to fossil fuels, actually uh, solar cells have one of the highest carbon footprints of all the renewable energy sources. And this is because a lot of CO2 is released just to make the, the photovoltaic. Uh, these photovoltaics, most of them require a very, for example, pure grade silicon, and so a lot of energy has to go in to purify the silicon. Um, when I heard this, actually going back to that question you had about my roots, uh, how I ended up here, I remember when I was in, I think I was in fifth grade, um, my, my teacher was teaching us about uh, photosynthesis, and then later in the year we learned about renewable energy and solar cells, and I asked, oh, do solar cells work like photosynthesis? And she said, not exactly. And that bothered me a lot because I thought, what? What is this new process for us? Why, why don't they use photosynthesis? And the more I went, I learned about photosynthesis and photovoltaics, the more it started to bother me because um, photosynthesis actually sequesters CO2. So when I learned that photovoltaics release CO2 to make them, I thought, this is crazy. We should be using photosynthesis for solar energy because it solves two problems. It takes up CO2, so it solves a carbon problem. And at the same time, it can be used to harness solar energy. So this is the inspiration behind living photovoltaics is using photosynthesis. And on top of it, I mean, living materials are self-replicating. You don't have to go to a factory and build a biological cell. They just make more of themselves without you doing anything. Um, and so this is a material scientist dream is a material that can make more of itself and at the same time absorb CO2. And bacteria is especially exciting because bacteria is everywhere. It's on 
on your cell phone that you're playing with right now on the tables, on the computer. So it makes even more sense that we use bacteria for solar energy because bacteria loves covering surfaces and solar cells are all about covering the earth's surface to harness solar energy. So this is the, the inspiration behind using a living material for photovoltaic applications. It solves many problems at the same time. Um, <clears throat> so slide four is just the artist's rendition. It just has a picture of, so this is not, as a, as a disclaimer, this is not what a real bacteria looks like, but it's an artist's rendition of what we hope to achieve. So you have a sun illuminating a bacteria and the bacteria is somehow engineered, the inside of the bacteria here, it shows an electronic circuit board, but the idea is that we engineer the bacteria to allow it to produce electricity. So light goes in, electricity goes out, and the idea is that the bacteria does this work for us. So slide five gives an overview of how do we make this cyborg bacteria, this bacteria that can take solar energy and produce electricity. So there are three main ways that our lab does this. The first way is bioengineering. So the bioengineering way, so the graphic I show here is just a series of proteins that allows that some bacteria, so not cyanobacteria, but other bacteria have that allows them to transport electrons across the outer membrane. So through bioengineering, I could engineer bacteria so that they have these proteins that allow them to, to transport electrons and produce electricity. Another approach that our lab uses is nanomaterials engineering. So we start to engineer electrodes and what these do is that the electrodes could interface with the bacteria and suck out as much electrons as they can from the bacteria. And a third way, which is a way I'll be uh, highlighting in, in today's discussion, is what we call nanobionics. The idea behind nanobionics is there is no interface between bacteria and electrode. The two are just intertwined. They're meshed together. So you can't really tell where the bacteria ends and where the electrode starts. And that bacteria becomes the electrode, the electrode becomes a bacteria. So can we create a living cell that kind of has these artificial materials embedded within it? Um, and so for this particular project, uh, what we do is we use single-walled carbon nanotubes. So these are the materials of the, the star of today's show, our single-walled carbon nanotubes, and put them inside of the bacteria with the hope that the nanotube can impart the bacteria with capabilities to behave like a solar cell, basically to allow these bacteria, which naturally take up solar energy and allow them to also produce electricity from this solar energy. So moving on to uh, slide six, it gives the reasons why we're using specifically single-walled carbon nanotubes to try to make these, um, these bacteria produce electricity. Um, one reason why we like carbon nanotubes, these single-walled carbon nanotubes, is that they can absorb light over many wavelengths, um, from the ultraviolet to the near-infrared, so from the UV to the near-IR. And so what this means is that although cyanobacteria could absorb certain wavelengths of light, we could use nanomaterials to allow them to absorb even more light, which is very promising for photovoltaic applications for increasing efficiency. Another reason why we like using single-walled carbon nanotubes to try to enhance this photovoltaic uh, you know, aspect is nanotubes can also be uh, metallic, so they can conduct electricity. And so if we can imagine, we could put nanotubes in the, cy in the cyanobacteria and especially if the nanotubes could go across the outer membrane of the bacteria, 
these nanotubes could act as metal wires that could suck out the, the electrons from inside of the um, bacteria cell. And another reason why we like single-walled carbon nanotubes is in addition to being metallic, some of these nanotubes could also be semiconducting. And these semiconducting nanotubes, so although those semiconducting nanotubes don't act like metals, what they can do is they can absorb light and emit it at a different wavelength. They emit uh, fluorescence in the near-infrared region. Uh, and so this is interesting. So you could do, for example, near-infrared is lower energy light. So through some mechanisms such as upconversion, this light could be, this energy could be transferred to the, to the bacteria to, um, to produce more electricity. But another advantage of this emission of the light is not only for energy transfer to enhance um, the efficiency of the solar cell, but it's also interesting for imaging applications. Um, so if you go down to slide, the next slide, slide seven, I talk about advantages of using carbon nanotubes beyond just photoelectricity generation. Um, another reason, there are actually more reasons why we want to put nanotubes inside of cyanobacteria besides energy. Uh, the first reason that uh, the first additional reason is uh, this near infrared fluorescence that they emit. So on the right hand side, I show the spectrum of absorption of light for that bacteria can do, the cyanobacteria can do. And you can see that these bacteria absorb light between 400 and 800 nanometers. Um, this causes some problem for imaging application because usually when you try to image bacteria, you use a dye or a protein and the fluorescence that these dyes and proteins emit is precisely between 400 and 700 nanometers. So when you try to do this inside of cyanobacteria, you have a hard time seeing the dye or the protein because the cyanobacteria naturally give off light at the same wavelengths of light. What's nice about carbon nanotubes, so you could see on the image on the right, the nanotube fluorescence is much more red. It's between 1,000 and 1,400 nanometers. So I could put these nanotubes inside of cyanobacteria and I could get a very clear signal because the signal is very different from the autofluorescence of the bacteria. So this is another reason why we want to get the nanotubes inside is that we could very clearly image them and we could track them and we could use the nanotubes as sensors without having to worry about background fluorescence from the bacteria. Um, just so you know, if anyone has any questions, just, just feel free to, to jump in. Uh, um, so another reason why we want to put uh, nanotubes in cyan a cyanobacteria is because actually cyanobacteria are, it's really difficult to put things inside. They have a very thick cell wall uh, compared to most mammalian cells that can do things like um, endocytosis. Cyanobacteria have these rigid uh, walls, so they don't have these active transport mechanisms that these mammalian cells have. And so it becomes very difficult to do things such as delivery of, of therapeutics for, for cyanobacteria to enhance their capabilities or repair them. And so getting nanotubes inside gives us some sort of a, a cargo, allows us to, by attaching cargo code to the nanotubes, we could use the nanotubes as a vehicle for delivering important uh, materials inside of cyanobacteria that are otherwise very difficult to do. And another reason why we'd be interested in putting nanotubes in cyanobacteria is also for DNA transformation. So some of you may have worked with E. coli where it's quite relatively standard to get DNA inside of E. coli. They do through electroshock and also chemical competence. Uh, cyanobacteria, there are a few strains that naturally take up um, DNA, which the strains we mostly work with do, but a lot of them actually require much more complicated techniques um, even as a postdoc, actually, it took me several months to try to figure it out. And I was in a lab that didn't work with cyanobacteria. 
actually, as someone who had no bioengineering background, I ended up having to give up on this project and ended up pursuing another project with E. coli just because of time limitations. And I realized, okay, this is just getting DNA inside cyanobacteria is hard to do. Uh, let me start with something that this lab already has expertise in that's much easier to do and is less specialized. But if we can engineer nanotubes to go inside cyanobacteria, maybe we could solve that problem. And so it becomes just as easy to get DNA inside as it is with E. coli. So this is the inspiration for getting nanotubes inside beyond just bioelectricity generation. So if uh, we... One, one question. I, I thought cyanobacteria was known for producing toxins. Uh, yes, so they do. I guess um, I'm not sure what kind of toxins, but I wouldn't be surprised if some strains do produce toxins. So maybe um, and I, what comes to mind when you mention that is what I'm thinking of a, a pond that has just dirty algae and cyanobacteria on the surface. Um, and, you know, when it produces toxins or not, uh, it, I guess if you're, you're not planning on eating the cyanobacteria in this case, um, and some cyanobacteria are actually quite friendly. I mean, they use algae, for example. It's actually um, used on um, alternative protein sources. So I think they have some things. I think it's is it the Impossible Meats. But there are certain companies out there that now started to make um, algae-based proteins. So when it becomes, when we're talking about toxicity, I guess it just the two things that come to mind is uh, which strains we're working with and what kind of application is it for. But... Um, in terms of just having a cyanobacteria being putting it on the rooftop being an issue, that's actually not so much an issue for this particular application because they're already there. They're already in ponds, they're already in lake, um, and we're still surviving. So I think the main question is for what kind of applications are we using it and also what kind of strains will we be using? Okay, thank you for, I, I think I'm just thinking of the layperson example of, you know, do not swim in areas with uh, um, cyanobacteria, et cetera. Actually, then you're going to love to know this. So one of our applications that we had in mind with these cyanobacteria was eating them, um, you know, because, uh, so not these particular cyanobacteria with nanotubes, but we have another strain of cyanobacteria where we bioengineered it for photovoltaic applications. And there's actually a um, health reason where it might be interesting to eat the bioengineered bacteria. Um, but actually, the question that you you raised would, would probably fall more in that category as well. And that's a whole whole other hurdle that we'll have to have to look into for sure. Thank you so much. Yep. But to address, so, you know, cyanos, we have many hurdles. One would be the, the eating aspect. And actually, just the nanotube already had its many hurdles that... Um, that Kathleen, that was just mentioned. So for example, slide eight discusses one such hurdle, which is actually imaging these cyanobacteria. So um, so the, we, the nanotubes emit this low energy light and this low energy light is not very easy to image using conventional optical setups. Um, so one setup that people usually use to see if something goes inside of a cell versus outside of a cell is confocal microscopy. And so this is briefly mentioned uh, on slide eight is confocal microscopy. Um, usually confocal microscopy is it collects light uh, from inside of the cell so you can see what light is coming from inside of the cell. And so the light that the nanotubes give off is in the near infrared. So these are low energy light. And one of the problems we had is actually that um, all these confocal setups only worked with visible light. So we they didn't work very well with near infrared light, the low energy light. So what we did is we had to actually build our own setup to be able to image 
this wavelength of light from inside of the bacteria cell. So this was actually set up done by my first PhD student, Vitaly Zubkov, so you can see his picture on the slide. And the slide also has a schematic of how this setup is done. Uh, there's a laser, there's something called a confocal unit. So that's kind of the heart that allows us to just look at the light that's inside of the cell. And then we have a camera and the near infrared that allows us to look at the um, nanotubes that are inside of the bacteria cell that give off the near infrared light. In our microscope, we also had a visible camera to allow us just to look at, to track where the bacteria is. So we could track the visible light that the bacteria na naturally gives off. And so what we do in this paper is that we're always comparing the near infrared light with from the nanotubes with the visible light of the cyanobacteria to make sure that there's an overlap to make sure that the nanotubes are actually inside of our cyanobacteria. And um, on the right side of this slide, uh, slide eight, I just have a comparison of a wide field image. So this is an image that collects all of the light of the bacteria. So that's light that's inside and outside of the bacteria versus confocal image, which is the image that collects the light just inside of the bacteria. And you could see the confocal image, you get much more heterogeneity. It's much more easy to see that there's an uneven distribution. Whereas with a wide field image, you don't, you have a lower resolution. You can't really uh, see that there's, it's in a homogeneous inside of a bacteria cell. So we get higher resolution with a confocal image. So moving on to slide nine. So slide nine is just a summary. That's basically, what we, how do we design the nanotube to go inside of the uh, inside of the cyanobacteria? So on the left side, I show that we wrap the nanotubes with different wrappings. Uh, DNA and chitazan are the first two that we tried. So the top uh, row, I look at bright field image. So this is just the visible image of the actual bacteria cell that we see in a normal microscope. The second one is the cell autofluorescence. So this is to look at the fluorescence, the natural fluorescence of the bacteria. In the third row, I look at the nanotube fluorescence. So this is the fluorescence that's uh, inside of the cell from the nanotubes. And we saw with the DNA and chitazan, so when we wrap the nanotubes with DNA or we wrap the nanotubes with chitazan, you could see that we could see the bright field image, we could see the cell give off its fluorescence. But the last row, we don't see any nanotube fluorescence. This means that our nanotubes, when we wrap them with DNA or chitazan, wouldn't go inside. And actually, this is one of the interesting um, tidbits uh, that, you know, at the, at the start, you know, what are the challenges? We actually, I'm embarrassed to say, we tried many things. So not just DNA, chitazan. We tried BSA. We tried polyvinyl alcohol. We tried basically anything we could get our hands on in the lab that would wrap the nanotube. Nothing went inside. And it was at this point that actually... Uh, you know, this was one of my um, PhD students. So this is the right after Vitalis, I had hired uh, Alessandra also as a PhD in my lab. And I had actually given up. And I said, Alessandra, so you could see Alessandra's picture on the slide. I, I said, you know, I think at this point, we, we better call it quits. You know, you have your uh, candidacy exam, and we also have to make sure your PhD is progressing. And we're just probably beating on a dead horse. And then I said, and then we came up with a plan mitigation strategy mm -hmm. to, to get her project to work. And then, um, you know, two weeks later, a few weeks later, she came to my office. She's like, I know we discussed and we agreed not to work on this anymore, but I, I, I had to try a few other things. And, and I got this. And she showed me the last column, the lysozyme nanotubes. So she managed to get the nanotubes inside by wrapping it with lysozyme. So it was very beautiful. You could see at the very bottom that we got nanotube fluorescence coming from inside of the cell, indicating that the nanotubes are inside, of course. 
And then we found a few other things that worked because um, initially I was worried that, okay, lysozyme is a protein that's known to eat up bacteria. So how do we know that we're not just destroying the outside of the bacteria to get the nanotubes inside? So she managed to denature the lysozyme. So she heated it up and she said, even when the lysozyme protein was not working, it was still going inside. And then she find other wrappings. So on the right-hand side, you could see that she tried polyarginine, lysozyme, uh, um, and also shown in red, so the polyvinyl alcohol, um, bovine serum albumin, and uh, DNA did not go inside. And the pattern here is that we found, so on the figure on the right, you could see that the ones that are positively wrapped, so when the protein or the wrapping is positively charged, it would go inside. And when it was not positive enough, or and especially when it was negative, it would not go inside. And so what we think was happening was that the nanotubes have to be wrapped with something positive to interact with the negative charge that's naturally on the bacteria surface. And that char positive negative charge interaction is what attracted the nanotubes to get them inside. So that problem was, so this is, you know, the interesting tidbit that managed to help us get the uh, nanotubes inside of the bacteria. So uh, once we got the nanotubes inside of the bacteria, we try to understand what other mechanisms could contribute. So slide 10. Uh, in slide 10, basically the idea is that we found, we looked at the effects of changing the length of the nanotube to get it inside. So on the left side, you could um, see, uh, yeah. Sorry, quickly, the, uh, when you say inside, we, we I mean, the picture, the, the pink pic, uh, photo that we saw is very bright on the periphery. It's a ring. So it's dark uh, in the center. So where is mm -hmm. the uh, uh, carbon nanotube located in, in specifically? Is it uh, the perimeter or is the inside the, in the where, where is the, where, where is these uh, nanotubes? You, you sound like one of my reviewers. Well, like many of my reviewers. <laughs> exactly. They ask the same thing. Are your nanotubes actually going inside? Is it just on the perimeter? The short answer is both the perimeter and inside, preferentially along the perimeter. And actually slide uh, 11, I'll show you the experimental data that proves where it's going. So we, we did the localization measurements as well. So the short answer is both, preferably uh, along the perimeter or periplasmic area, and we have additional data on slide 11 um, because of insightful reviewers like, like yourself, which is actually, we found more interesting results from, from these additional measurements that we did. Great question. Um, so yeah, so, uh, so slide 10. So before we started to look at where, so that critical question that you asked, where exactly is it going is something that we wanted to know as well. Before we knew that where it was going, we, we were still interested to see you know, what effects to get it to see this fluorescence effect. So on the left, uh, so slide 10, we looked at the effect of length. So we see the AFM, the atomic force microscopy. We use that just to look at the free nanotubes and we saw that we could separate the short nanotubes at, shown at the top from the long nanotubes shown on the bottom. So we did centrifugation to separate the short and long. And we saw that when we use the shorter nanotubes, so on the right side of these four, this four panel image, you could see that the shorter nanotubes more easily go inside than the longer nanotubes. We get much brighter fluorescence coming from the shorter nanotubes compared to the longer nanotubes, even though the shorter nanotubes actually have a lower quantum yield. So even though each shorter nanotube emits less fluorescence than a longer nanotube, they end up being brighter, indicating that more of them go inside. 
And this is actually in agreement with what people have observed with mammalian cells. Um, and so they also observed that shorter nanotubes much more easily get endocytosized in mammalian cells compared to longer nanotubes shown here on the right. So the right is just the, the image that people have also reported for mammalian cells. So, so we know so far that the nanotubes really, to go inside, it works really well when they're short. And it also works really well um, when they have a very positively, uh, when they have a positive wrapping on their surface. So now the critical question, uh, where exactly are the nanotubes going inside of the cell? Uh, as was mentioned, so slide 11 provides a summary of all the measurements that we did, actually only some of them. So to see, we were actually even more skeptical about you know, where exactly are the nanotubes inside of the cell is, are we even getting nanotubes inside of the cell? Because as, as was mentioned, um, you, you saw in the images that they form a nice ring. Um, how do we know that they're just not stuck on the outside or stuck in the periplasm? How do we know anything's going inside of the cytosol in the center? Um, and we were also worried about that. So one measurement, so panels A and B in this slide, we just track the fluorescence increase over time as we're adding the nanotubes. So what was nice, so the, the reason that, that we saw this ring was actually because we were using confocal microscopy. So in the wide field image, actually we wouldn't have seen this ring. We would have automatically assumed that the nanotubes were going inside. But because of the confocal microscope, we were able to see very high resolution images and we saw that the higher distributions on the ring, but of course this raised the concern if it was actually going inside or if it was just sticking to the outside of the cell. And so on the plot that we see in B, so in red, we track the fluorescence increase on the cell perimeter over time. In black, the line that we see, we track the fluorescence increase at the cell center over time. And we did some modeling to modeling. So shown in the dotted line is our model of, of this. So we fit it to a rate constant. But the important thing I wanted to highlight here is when you look at the fluorescence increase around the perimeter, you see that it starts to level off over time. So after about um, 2000 seconds. But at the same time, we see when we look at the, compare this to the fluorescence at the center, we see that there's still a linear increase at the fluorescence at the center. So if the fluorescence at the center is due to contaminating fluorescence from the of things sticking to the outside and not things going inside, we would have expected it to follow the same trend. But we see that the trends are different, that the inside continuous, continues to increase in fluorescence while the outside has already leveled off. So this indicates that the nanotubes, at least some of the nanotubes are actually going to the inside of the cell and the increase that we see at the center is not due entirely due to contaminating fluorescence of nanotubes that are just sticking to the outside in the neighboring confocal planes. So this was one indication that we are getting some nanotubes inside of the cell. Another one, so panel uh, C, we used uh, an assay using a ferrocyanide. So FECN is ferrocyanide. So ferrocyanide is a chemical that quenches nanotube fluorescence. So when it interacts with the nanotubes, the fluorescence goes down. And what's nice about ferrocyanide is that it can penetrate the outer membrane of the cell, but it cannot penetrate the inner membrane of the cell. So it could go in the periplasm. So it cannot go at the center of the cell. It cannot go at the cytosol. So what we did is we took one of these ring-like nanotube, uh, these ring-like structures that we saw. So the nanotubes formed this nice, stronger fluorescence ring around the, around the cell. And we added ferrocyanide. And we saw that when we added ferrocyanide, indeed, this ring disappeared. So this means that the ferrocyanide was quenching the, the fluorescence of the nanotubes that were just stuck on the outside or stuck in the periplasm of the cell. 
But we saw that we were able to retain the fluorescence. So there's the before is before we add ferrous cyanide. After is after we add ferrous cyanide. And we saw that the signal at the center of the cell stayed the same after we added ferrous cyanide. So that means that these nanotubes that were inside of the cell are inaccessible to the ferrous cyanide. So they did not see a decrease in fluorescence. And so you could see that because the fluorescence at the center of the cell stayed the same, these cells, these nanotubes must be at the center where the ferrous cyanide cannot access them and decrease their fluorescence. Um, panel D is another measurement that we did to make sure that the nanotubes were going inside of the cell. Uh, this is through TEM. So TEM, what we do is we take the, the cells, we slice them, and we image them. And we had to use, we couldn't image the nanotube directly over TEM because the contrast is not so great. So we had to essentially uh, label them using um, gold nanoparticles. And here you could see that we were able to see the gold nanoparticles um, signals from inside of the cell. So in, in red, I pointed to some arrows that show some of the gold nanoparticles. I also zoom in in the upper right-hand panel of panel D where you could see the actual uh, nanoparticles um, confirming that they these nanoparticles are inside of the cell. And because these nanoparticles, specifically, we engineer them to, to bind the nanotubes, um, they, the wrapping the lysozyme on the nanotubes, uh, we were able to confirm that that was able to get inside. Um, in panel E, we also use confocal Raman microscopy. Uh, so we were able to look at the Raman signal of the nanotubes, and we saw a nice, strong signal uh, coming from inside of the nanotubes as well. Uh, the issue with the confocal microscopy is that the, the resolution is much less than what we saw with the fluorescence, but at least it confirms our, our observation that within the confocal plane inside of the cell that there were nanotubes inside. Um, we also did cell fractionation. So we took the cell and we separated the cytosol from the membrane. And as confirmed, we do get some nanotubes stuck to the membrane, but we also get nanotubes inside of the cytosol. So the, the answer here is that we, although the majority goes around the periplasm, we were able to confirm that some of the nanotubes were actually going inside of the cell. And this was a major, major breakthrough for us. Um, so going on to slide 12, we asked our question, we said, okay, the nanotubes are going inside of the cells. Um, what is the mechanism that they're going inside in? So we said that there's some charge-charge interaction. Um, is there just based on diffusion? Are the nanotubes poking holes in the cell? Or is there something, for example, mammalian cells, they use active transport mechanisms like endocytosis to eat, to eat the nanotubes. Um, the closest thing we have with cyanobacteria is we could use what we call type 4 pili. So these are appendages that stick out from the bacteria. And usually bacteria that can um, take up DNA naturally use type 4 pili to, to, eat, to, to internalize this DNA. And the bacteria that we were using have these appendages. And so we were curious if, if it relied on these appendages to go inside. Because if not, this could be an exciting application to getting foreign DNA inside because the bacteria, some of the bacteria that don't take up DNA naturally lack these appendages. And so if we have nanotubes that can go inside of these bacteria, that means we could get DNA more easily inside of bacteria that cannot naturally take up DNA. So slide 12 um, on the left side, I looked at a mutant. So this is an HFQ mutant. So these are mutant bacteria that do not have these appendages. So these are bacteria that we bioengineered that cannot take up DNA naturally. And on the left side, you could see I compared the fluorescence of the bacteria to the fluorescence of the nanotube, and we got nice overlap. Uh, this means that the nanotubes were able to go inside of the bacteria, even though they don't have these pili. 
And on, you know, on panel A on the right side of that, you could see the planes that, you know, we take different uh, fluorescence planes and we could see that the nanotubes are in fact going inside of these bacteria. Um, we also looked at another strain of bacteria called Nostoc. So on the right side of this slide 12, you could see um, Nostoc is, so these bacteria look very different. They look like a snake. You could see it looks like a long um, green uh, snake. So they don't exist as individual cells. They exist as filaments that are attached to one another. And uh, here you could see that even these bacteria, so we're interested in testing these bacteria because not only are they structurally different, so not only do they arrange in these filaments, uh, they're also um, not naturally competent. So these also lack type 4 pili. And again, in this case, we could see that the nanotubes can go inside of these kinds of cyanobacteria as well. So what this means is that we do not need to rely on pili to get nanotubes inside, and we could use these nanotubes to go inside of cells that naturally that do not that lack these pili and that are naturally incompetent to take up DNA. So that's the summary for for that slide. So slide 13. So so far we established nanotubes are positively wrapped. They could go in when they're shorter. They like to go in. We know that they're going inside of the cell, and they, we know that they're going inside of cells that can naturally take up DNA and cells that can not naturally take up DNA. So these are cells that lack pili, for example. And so once they're going inside of these cells, our question is, what are they doing to these cells? If they're going inside of the cytosol, are they killing the cells, or are they, for example, destroying the photosynthetic activity of the cells? How are they interfering with the cell's natural metabolic functions? So slide 13, we look at photosynthetic activity by measuring oxygen evolution. So on the left side, what we do is we look at the oxygen that's being evolved as we turn the light on and off. And the idea is as we turn on the light, photosynthesis is happening and it's producing oxygen. And you could see that when we turn the light off, we don't see significant oxygen production. We turn the light on, we see an increase in oxygen production. So these on the left, this is ox oxygen production of these cells that have internalized nanotubes. So fortunately, we see that even though the cells have the nanotubes inside of them, they can still produce oxygen when the light is turned on. So this means that the, the nanotubes are not negatively impacting their, their photosynthetic activity. They're not inhibiting photosynthesis. And on the right side of slide 13, we actually quantify the oxygen production. So we compared natural uh, Seneca cystis to, so it's a bit cut off at the bottom here, but um, we have uh, Seneca cystis with the lysozyme nanotubes as a second bar graph. And the third bar is Seneca cystis with lysozyme uh, without nanotubes. In all three of these, we see that there is no uh, significant impact on photosynthesis. So whether the nanotubes are there, uh, whether the lysozyme is there without the nanotubes, um, the photosynthetic oxygen evolution rate stayed about the same. And on the right side is just negative controls. Uh, the, the nanotubes by themselves don't produce oxygen and the media without any nanotubes and without any cells don't produce any oxygen. So basically this slide tells us that under the tested conditions that we saw when we added the nanotubes, we don't see a significant negative impact on uh, oxygen production. So no significant negative impact on photosynthesis. So now we move on to slide four, going back to this idea of a biological photovoltaic. So we know that we could get the nanotubes inside of the cells. We know that the cells can continue to do photosynthesis. And the last piece of the puzzle is, what effect does this have on, on photoelectricity production? Can we use, can the nanotubes actually enhance electricity production? Now that we know that it does not 
negatively affect the uh, photosynthetic activity of the cell. So slide 14 gives you just a schematic of what this kind of photovoltaic looks like uh, based on existing literature. So what you do is you take these bacteria, you put them on some sort of electrode, and the idea is that you shine light on these bacteria. So in blue, the bacteria in this case is in solution. You shine light on the bacteria in solution, and the electrode below it will extract the electrons from the photosynthetic cell. And then it will go through some sort of current, some sort of circuit, and it will power some sort of load, and then it will go to the, the opposite electrode, the cathode, where it will combine with oxygen to produce uh, water. And so this uh, photovoltaic that you see here, this biological photovoltaic, <clears throat> what's limiting its performance, so most of these photovoltaics to date have less than 1% efficiency. So, you know, I gave you this inspiration about using living photovoltaics, but I'd be lying to you if I told you you could go in your backyard, take a plant, put it on an electrode, and you, you solve your energy crisis. Um, you know, one of the issues here is that these bacteria, they've evolved to do photosynthesis, but they've evolved to survive. They've evolved under uh, natural selection. They weren't evolved by nature to produce electricity. In fact, you would think that, you know, a plant that's leaking electricity or a bacteria that's leaking electricity is actually less competitive than one that's more effective at keeping all the charge that it's extracted for itself. And so the problem with these bacteria is that their outer membrane is insulating. They're not engineered by nature to, to produce electricity. And so... The idea here is now that we have the nanotubes inside of them, and now that we know that a lot of the nanotubes like to kind of hang out around, around the perimeter and the periplasmic area, are these nanotubes useful for getting electrons across the periplasm? So the periplasm is a very critical part of the bacteria. It interfaces the inside of the bacteria with the outside of the bacteria. And because the nanotubes are there, we thought maybe this is a promising prospect for getting charge across the, the two outer membranes of the bacteria. And so uh, if we move to slide 15, these are measurements that were done by Melania, Dr. Uh, Melania Regente, a postdoc in my lab. And um, she has magic hands when it comes to being able to take these biological photovoltaic measurements. Uh, what Melania has done is she's managed to take these measurements and do so reproducibly. So here, what she did is she did chronoamperometry measurements. So she looked at the current production over time. So in blue, it's just nanotubes without cyanobacteria. And you see that there's, when we turn the light on and off, so in black is on, at the very top is light off, light on, light on, light off. We want to see if we could see a photocurrent. And we saw that with the nanotubes alone, we don't see any current being produced when we turn the light on or off. So the nanotubes don't care about the light. Um, in green, we have our cyanobacteria without nanotubes. And we see that when we turn the light on and off, we see an increase in current, decrease in current, increase in dirt current, decrease in current. So we do get some natural electricity production from these cyanobacteria, but not so much. When she added the nanotubes, she actually saw up to a 15-fold increase in, in production. So she, you see this huge jump in electricity production when the light is turned on. So this was very exciting because it confirmed that the nanotubes were able to enhance the electricity production from these cyanobacteria. So moving on to slide 16, we tried to understand why were we seeing more current. And so in panel A, we first wanted to see what are the effects of concentration, what, what are the nanotubes doing. We saw, so we increased the concentration of nanotubes we added from zero to 32 milligrams per liter. And we saw that as we increased concentration, we saw more and more electricity production up to a certain limit. 
so up to the, the 32 milligrams per liter. And then as we continue to add, we didn't see as much of an increase in, in current. So increasing concentration over this range, we saw an increase in, in photocurrent production. So this at least gave us some signal that it was in fact the nanotubes that were, that were increasing the photocurrent production. Uh, panel B, we have the uh, AFM images where we have the nano where we have the nanotubes. So on the left side is the cyanobacteria with the nanotubes. On the right side is the cyanobacteria without the nanotubes. And what we saw is with the nanotubes so on the left side, you could see that the nanotubes kind of acted as a bridge. So we got this kind of filamentous network outside of the cell that was interfacing the cell much more better with the with the electrode that was underneath it. So it was acting kind of as a bridge. And so what we believe is happening is that these nanotubes are, are more closely interfacing the cell with the electrode to act as a bridge. And we were able to confirm this, that, that these bridging effect was able to decrease the resistance of the electrode. So we did um, impedance measurements, which I haven't shown here, which confirmed that in fact, in the presence with, of the nanotubes, we saw a decrease in resistance, which means that it's much more easy for the electrons to be extracted from the cyanobacteria. Um, and again, panel C, actually, we compared, uh, so we wanted to know, is this effect of the, the nanotubes going inside, or is this an effect of, um, could this happen with nanotubes that don't go inside of the cell? So panel C, we compared the uh, lysozyme nanotubes, shown on the left side, with the DNA-wrapped nanotubes. So the DNA-wrapped nanotubes, they, they don't go inside of the cell. But what we saw that was interesting, so the top row is a bright field image. The second row is the natural fluorescence of the cyanobacteria. The third row is just the fluorescence of the nanotube. And the last row is just comparing all of the channels, so comparing the overlap of the nanotubes with the fluorescence of the cell. What we saw was interesting was even though we saw this bridging effect, this networking filamentous effect forming around the cyanobacteria that we believe is extracting the charge, we saw the same thing with the DNA nanotube. So you can see the DNA nanotube formed the same kind of amorphous filament around the cyanobacteria, even though it was not going inside of the cyanobacteria. So indeed, we get the same network that we saw with the DNA. So we also did see an enhancement with the DNA-wrapped nanotubes, even though they weren't going inside of the cyanobacteria to produce more photocurrent, confirming that the mechanism that the nanotube acts as a bridge between the cells and the electrode was true. But we also still saw a much higher photocurrent. So I didn't show this data here. It's, it's in the SI of our paper. But we still saw a much higher photocurrent for the nanotubes that were able to go inside of the cell. So we have both the effect of the nanotubes acting as a bridge for the outside of the cell to interface it with the electrode, as well as the enhancement of photocurrent of the nanotubes going inside of the cell, presumably because it's more effective at extracting charges that are coming from inside of the cell to outside of the cell. So slide 17 is just the summary slide of everything that I've discussed. So to summarize, you know, what I've, I've discussed and what I've shown, we saw that the nanotubes have a charge and length dependent uptake. So we saw the more positively charged, the shorter they are, they could more easily get taken up. We saw that when the nanotubes are inside of the, of, uh, the cyanobacteria, we could image the cyanobacteria at near infrared wavelengths without uh, interference from the um, the visible fluorescence. So we could see the nanotubes inside of the bacteria through the confocal images. We also saw that when we put the nanotubes inside the cyanobacteria, we get sustained viability and photosynthetic activity. So our bacteria are alive and they're able to do photosynthesis. 
And finally, we saw that when the nanotubes are inside of the cyanobacteria that they can show a significant enhancement in uh, electricity production. And again, we think this is due to the interfacing with the electrode as well as effective charge transport from what's happening inside of the cell. So this is the idea of nanobionics. This is how we try to enhance the capabilities of natural cyanobacteria by, by augmenting it, by interfacing it with nanomaterials and giving them capabilities that are beyond anything they could find in nature. So what I kept as the last slide is this idea of, okay, this is nanobionics. Can we extend this to inherited nanobionics? So slide 18 is, okay, the nanotubes go inside, they're happy. But what happens over time? What happens when these cells divide? So on the top right-hand corner is a picture of a measurement that we did where we looked at the long-term effects. So these are uh, bacteria, and we sandwiched them inside of a gel, an agrogel. And these are bacteria that had been incubated with nanotubes. And then we just shined light, and we monitored cell division over time. So the images you see on this slide, so the top row is the visible, uh, just the regular image that we see with the regular microscope of the cyanobacteria. In the bottom row, we see the near-infrared fluorescence, so we could track the nanotubes as the cells are dividing. So in orange, I highlighted uh, this orange, yellow, sl orange slash yellow box, the red and green boxes to track the cells that are dividing. And you could see that as the cells are dividing, the daughter cells are inheriting the nanotubes. The daughter cells show near-infrared fluorescence. Um, and so this is near-infrared fluorescence is fluorescence that you, you, this is a fluorescence at wavelengths that we do not have in nature. And yet these bacteria are able to inherit this fluorescence from its parents. Uh, this is akin to having, for example, um, the idea of nanobionics. So imagine, you know, a parent has an artificial arm or artificial limb uh, with capabilities that are beyond our natural capabilities, our natural limbs, and then having their children inherit this capability, inherit these limbs. Um, this is kind of what was, was very exciting, is the fact that the daughter cells are able to inherit the nanotubes, and they're able to inherit this completely artificial near-infrared fluorescence. Um, and if you look closely at these images, the bottom row, you could see that some cells are much brighter than others. So the ones that are much brighter are the ones that are not dividing because their their children are not inheriting these nanotubes so the nanotubes do not become diluted over time so you know the nanotubes are not produced naturally by the bacteria so each generation there's less and less that gets inherited because the daughter cells are splitting the nanotubes that are already available so you could very clearly see which cells are dead and which ones are alive because the dead ones are not dividing so they stay brighter and what's also interesting is you could also track the the nanotubes when they divide, they stay in the same membrane, but and they don't diffuse in the new area. So you could see, for example, from where the nanotubes are in the daughter cells, that which part of the membrane came from the parent. And because the, the bacteria divide in known patterns, so they divide in perpendicular planes. So they divide in one plane, and then the next generation, they divide in the perpendicular plane, and then the next generation, they divide in the next perpendicular plane. You could track that this part of the membrane came from this bacteria's great-great-grandfather, for example. So it's really, really neat that you could start to track these bacteria over several generations, and you can infer which part of the membranes came from what generation. Um, I have a, a video, actually, so you could start seeing this division in real time. Uh, I don't know if it's posted. Uh, maybe we should post the video on, on, on this uh, room. Okay.
Yeah, I'm switching. Katarina would be. One second. So, so the video that's being uploaded, uh, just to give you you guys a preview, the left side is just kind of the um, the division, so you can monitor. The, so I played. It's a very brief video. It's actually just one second. I, I accelerated it to show the division, um, and it, it goes on repeat, so that if you find a cell, you could track it in the next cycle. So it's a repeated video of cell division. So the left side shows the visible images of the bacteria dividing, and the right side shows the near-infrared fluorescence tracking. And again, you could see that the ones that stay bright are the ones that are not dividing, and the ones that are dividing, it becomes diluted over time. And you could see that the nanotubes just stay in the old membrane, so they don't diffuse, they don't appear to diffuse in the new part of the membrane, so you could track the generation of the membrane um, you could stain the membrane and then you could track it over several generations. Um, one thing that's interesting is that you could see kind of like, for example, at the center of the movie, the, the brightest cell that's at the center, that's kind of a little to the bottom to the left. So if you look at the, the panel on the right with the near infrared fluorescence, there's a cell that's near this closest to the center where it seems to form this bridge. So the dead cell is, is the brightest one and it's kind of bridged to these alive cells that are dividing. So that bridge, I think, uh, you know, it represents kind of the bridging that we saw with the electrodes that help extract charge and interface the, the bacteria with the electrode to produce electricity. But, uh, you know, I, I wanted to finish off with this video because it's just kind of, I think it's pretty neat to watch these cells dividing and we could see the daughter cells inheriting these, these near infrared fluorescence capabilities, which is quite exciting. Um, so that's all I had actually. I, I didn't know uh, if there were any any questions or if I if something was not very clear. Well, um, first of all, thank you so much for um, sharing this with us and explaining um, in such good detail um, why why you had to do the different steps and how difficult it was. And it's it's really great that you shared that because. You know, we read the paper and then we really don't have a grasp on, you know, what the challenges were <clears throat> to develop the strategy. So that was really great. And um, yeah, and <laughs> I'm I'm so happy that your student went ahead and, and continued <laughs> in the, behind the scenes um, so that this could be realized. That uh, is wonderful. Um, yeah, I saw Frank had the question, so please go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah, so uh, I second uh, Katarina's uh, uh, comments there. I mean, so, uh, earlier I, I opened my mic just to provide feedback that the video is, at least on my side, is says uh, downloading and processing some, somehow. So it worked for me when I a copy to the laptop and download. So I do see the video, uh, the movie, and uh, uh, curiously, I saw there's the uh, some kind of a bridging uh, bondage. Like there's a, there's a is it just a, a optical kind of a effects or is it for, for the very bright maybe the dead uh, cells that uh, there's some kind of a a thin thread connecting to those that are breathing, you know, kind of a chain. Uh, 
changing uh, uh, kind of a, so I, I was wondering uh, what it is. These there yeah. seem to be a thin thread. So we think that it's it's real, so it's not an optical effect. Um, and you know we confirmed this from from you know some of the AFM images we saw. But it's really interesting that you noticed this right because we actually I, you know just recently noticed that I see a lot more of this bridging with the dead cells bridging the live cells. Um, this is something actually uh, we hadn't even explored and we haven't even really noticed until recently. Um, I, I have no explanation for that. Uh, it, it certainly seems that it occurs much more along. It, it's possible that maybe, um, you know, one hypothesis is, okay, these cells that are dead have a higher, thicker layer of nanotubes uh, around them that makes it easier to form this bridge. So it's just kind of overflowing to the live ones. Uh, it could be something as simple as that, just a matter of higher concentration of nanotubes in the area. But um, it would be interesting to see if, if there's some other effect, maybe, uh, as the cells are dividing, maybe, you know, there's exposed, uh, this would expose new membrane that doesn't have nanotubes, and maybe that would kind of suck off or, you know, draw away nanotubes from the neighboring dead cells, and so that might act as a bridge. That would be really fascinating to explore, actually. But the short answer is I don't know. Yeah, I think, thanks for, you know, again, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, I, I mean, it's, it, uh, it's very it's, it's uh, congratulations uh, to to you and your group that uh, this is very logically that you're actually pushing forward a very interesting technology like that. so what will be say um, there seems uh, I would assume that there will be a uh, limit for these uh, engineered uh, um, uh, bacteria that are uh, uh, generations of uh, survival. Have you have you uh, keep some of the lines that keep dividing until now, or is there uh, some sort of a threshold for uh, like uh, upper limit? Yeah. So certainly, uh, there there is a limit. So the idea is we have nanotubes in these bacteria. They're continuing to divide. They're continuing to take up CO two and make more of themselves. But the the amount of nanotubes are constant, right? And over time, they get diluted. And so we expect over many, many, many generations, the nanobionic effect would would die off. And in terms of addressing this, so the easiest answer would be okay. You could just keep adding nanotubes gradually over time. So you could keep the ratio of cyanobacteria and nanotubes the same. Uh, but we're envisioning kind of something where we'd like to use because, you know, we we have a, a lot of faith in, in, in this this idea of living photovoltaics as being a new generation of, of photovoltaics. It solves so many problems. And in terms of thinking of in terms of sustainability and cost, actually what we've envisioned is wouldn't it be neat if you could say, for example, an ideal solution would be if the cyanobacteria could produce its own nanotubes or a, a protein equivalent. So can we engineer, now that we know that the nanotubes are okay, they can survive, cyanobacteria can produce electricity and still survive, um, can we bioengineer these cyanobacteria to actually produce its electricity without having to add nanotubes? And again, this could be, and this is the new generation of, of what we've been doing. Uh, I guess I could give you a sneak peek. So we managed to get some something that works uh, and hopefully this this work will be shared soon with the with the community. But uh, in terms of sustainability, long terms, exactly as you said, the bottleneck is, okay, what about 
infinite generations? And my answer to that is, let's make it so that producing electricity is literally in its DNA, because if it's in its DNA, then we don't have to worry about it going through many generations. And so that's in the bioengineering aspect that I highlighted in the presentation is actually another area that strongly complements our nanobionic uh, approach to ensuring the longevity of, of this technology. Yeah, that's, uh, if, if that can be made work, that uh, will be very impactful. That So so l let me try to uh, understand that uh, a little bit. So you, somehow the DNA becomes the, uh, somehow uh, can produce, uh, I actually uh, blanking on what, what kind of a, uh, uh, life produce that uh, are mimicking a fluorescent uh, uh, carbon nanotube. Yeah, sorry, I, I wasn't very clear. So, because DNA is entered in many, we, we wrap the nanotubes with DNA, and then there's a natural DNA of the bacteria. So, in this case, what I meant was, um, can we genetically modify the bacteria? So, let's take nanotubes out of the picture. What we want in the end is we want something that can produce electricity over many generations. And the issues with adding nanotube is that we have to keep, it's something that the bacteria cannot naturally produce. We have to keep adding nanotubes to make sure it produces electricity. So our idea is, can we change the DNA? So using bioengineering or genetic engineering, can we change the DNA of the bacteria so that it can express proteins? So this is uh, like, like GMOs, genetically modified organisms. People modify the genes of a bacteria. But in this case, you modify the genes so that it can, um, so that it expresses proteins and these proteins naturally allow it to produce electricity without having to add anything. So the idea, the DNA itself is not playing an important part in producing electricity, but the purpose of the DNA is to encode for proteins, just like how DNA encodes our eye color, our hair color. Can we encode in the DNA a, a protein that will allow, or a series of proteins that will allow the bacteria to, to produce electricity? I hope that, that clarifies what I meant. Oh, it's clear. I got it. Thank you. And uh, I think uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's actually uh, uh, qu quite a lot to, to, to ask for, you know, this is already very groundbreaking. And given that, uh, um, I mean, carbon nanotube, we all know that it's a good sensor, a very, very small can penetrate uh, cells very easily. So uh, now you, you have already uh, proved that uh, it's going to be, you know, reliable to deliver. That's already... I remember there was a uh, researcher earlier, not too long ago, to our club that uh, working on similar, uh, using uh, this as a sensor. And yeah, so uh, I guess I'll yield the mic uh, to uh, Katerina and others, and uh, I'll, I'll come back with more uh, questions if there's more time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Shah, did you have a question? Yeah, thank you so much. That was a really wonderful talk for beginning of the day. So uh, my question, I have a couple of questions. First of all, we are talking about uh, cyanobacteria and uh, in the case of the nanotube, uh, do you have any information around the, around the delocalized kind of electrons? Also, we know that about the producing the heat and vibration 
this is two points because when we are thinking about the cell-to-cell -cell communication later on, it can be challenging. Also, uh, because you talk about the next generation and offspring, and I was thinking about, are you thinking about the hetero, heterosis or inbreeding kind of, I don't know, for making the offspring? Because this is another point. And also during your research, did you pay attention which part of life cycle of the cyanobacteria uh, you are focusing in because we have a resting, for example, cycle. And I think those points are important. And I was just wondering if you have further information to share with us, that would be wonderful. Yeah, thanks for, for the questions. So I'll, I'll try to go in the order. Um, the first, I guess, was the uh, electron extraction. So we in terms of where exactly we're getting, so we know that the electron extraction is coming from photosynthesis, at least partially, because uh, we did a control where we added a DCMU. So DCMU is an inhibitor of photosynthesis. And what this what's, this inhibitor does is that, you know, to go for those of you who have a, a photosynthesis background, there's photosystem two, photosystem one, um, and it, in, it intercepts the electron during the electron cycle between the two photosystems. And by stealing that electron, it inhibits photosynthesis. And we found out that when we add this inhibitor, that the uh, electricity production goes down. So this is an implication that uh, the electricity that's coming out of the cyanobacteria when we turn on the light is due to, is linked to the photosynthetic cycle. So where exactly it's stealing the electrons, what part of the cycle, we haven't looked into this yet. It remains an area of, of open um, of, of exploration. Uh, the second question on heat. So um, I wasn't sure if I quite got this. So I understand. So for heat, um, in terms of photosynthesis, usually, so one actually heat was actually one reason why we wanted to to make this biological photovoltaic because so plants and photosynthetic organisms they absorb solar energy and from an evolutionary standpoint, what they do is they just absorb what they need and anything above that they get rid of. And in fact, too much solar energy is bad. So under high light conditions, up to 80% of the solar energy that it absorbs, it wastes as heat and fluorescence because if it takes up too much solar energy and produces too much electrons, then it starts to overreduce the proteins and the proteins that have too much electrons then start to form reactive oxygen species and this damages a protein. So actually plants have devised very intricate mechanisms that to protect themselves against too much solar energy, wasting it as heat and fluorescence rather than producing, uh, rather than taking up too much electrons, which will damage its, its uh, machinery. So we actually think that in this case, if the nanotubes allow the bacteria to more easily shuttle electrons outside, um, usually the mechanisms where it produces more heat, it serves as a competition to heat. So let's say the, the bacteria under high light conditions produces, uh, absorbs a lot of light, and usually this is dissipated as heat. Rather than dissipating it as heat, it would actually shuttle it as electricity. So it would actually help the bacteria survive better under high light conditions. And in fact, we were able to see this, so we have in our, in our um, SI uh, supplementary data that um, the bacteria divide and grow much better as we increase the amount of light. Um, so in this case, uh, it's certainly the case that I would imagine the heat production would be different because the bacteria are able to survive, have at least under higher light conditions, um, 
they could they have another avenue for dissipating extra energy as opposed to heat. I wasn't sure if your question, if you meant if this heat was meant as a signaling molecule with other neighboring cells or, or did uh, you... Eventually, it's going to turn to the signaling because I just mentioned about yeah. the cell-to-cell -cell communication, but the main point was the uh, nanotube by itself because of the material mm -hmm. of the nanotube and they can cause the dislocalized electrons. And in the result, we have a, a vibration production, which is just mm -hmm. causing by the covalent bonding so that's why i just asked which you explain i think okay so in, th in this case it's not so much the heat that's naturally produced by the cyanobacteria but likely the heat generated from from current and usually that's going to be proportional to to the you know it's going to be related to the resistance that you have um of course this is going to be an additional so although arguably the nanotubes prevent natural heat dissipation from cyanobacteria there's also the heat source generated from generating a current and having these electrons having to overcome the resistance. Um, and I actually, we haven't tested this, but I would imagine that it certainly would have an effect uh, in terms of signaling if, uh, heat signals, signaling mechanisms between different cells. Um, again, this is something that had not yet been explored, but I think I would think uh, is likely to, to be affected as well. Um, the third one was a heterocyst. So actually, it's interesting to mention this heterocyst. So we just came out with a follow-up paper in, um, where we explored specifically uh, um, the effect of uh, heterocyst differentiation. So this um, is in the photo, uh, uh, Chemical Photobiological Sciences uh, Journal, where we, um, where we actually saw that the cells were able to differentiate under nitrogen deprivation conditions. So the Nostoc cells, these are cells the ones that I mentioned that kind of look like a snake, uh, these filaments. So when you remove um, uh, under deprivation conditions, you could force these cells um, to to form. They form two different kinds of cells. They call vegetative cells and and heterocysts. And um, heterocysts are cells that are used for um, uh, uh, nitrogen fixation. And they have a different cell architecture, different membrane. And the new paper that that we just uh, published actually shows that. The nanotubes go inside the nostoc, and when we put them under conditions to form these uh, heterocysts, the nanotubes actually prefer the heterocysts over the vegetative cells. And it was really interesting because these heterocysts, they don't give off the natural cell fluorescence that the vegetative cells do. So you could very, normally when you do imaging, you see a line of cells and then you see a gap in fluorescence. And usually the gap that is implying that either there's a gap between two different filaments or it could be a heterocyst that's there. Um, and so we were able to image the heterocyst because it very easily took up the carbon nanotubes and it was really neat to, to be able to differentiate it. So if you're interested in, in cell differentiation of the Nostoc cells, um, first question is whether they can differentiate um, and if the, the nanotubes go inside the heterocyst and the answer is, is yes. And I'd recommend that you could take a look at um, this paper uh, that's actually just came out within the past week, I believe, that studies precisely this question in greater detail. For sure, and the condition that you just mentioned was, for example, increasing the phosphate and nitrogen, <clears throat> the situation for, that you just for, for nitrogen, nitrogenesis. Yeah. Okay, yeah. you just push it to the nitrogen and phosphate, maybe that's yes. how it just selected. Yep. Okay, that, and that we have the... Really, yeah, very interesting because it just came to my mind. So and, which one? And, also, 
you mentioned also the, the light cycle. So we did not look at the light cycle explicitly, but we did do, for example, um, you know, when we turn our light on and off conditions. So one idea would be we turn the light on and off to match light cycle of the bacteria. In this particular case, we didn't do it to match light cycle. We matched it to show stabilization. So we turn the light on, we wait for it to stabilize, and then we turn it off, we wait for it to stabilize. And the two don't necessarily match up. Um, it would be interesting to see how this matches up with the light cycle because we did notice, so other measurements that we did is we looked at the effect of the growth cycle. So we looked at electricity production from a nanotube internalization actually from um, cells that were grown in the initial phase, the exponential phase, the stationary phase. We also looked at cells that were grown under uh, different media conditions. And we definitely saw that there was a, there was a big difference in nanotube uptake depending on the growth cycle of the cell and depending on the media conditions it was grown. And based on our preliminary measurements, we believe that uh, this is related to the fact that these at these different stages of the cycle, the cell's outer membrane has different charges. Uh, the negative charge, we, I mentioned that cells naturally have negative charge, and the charge actually varies with what cycle you're, you're at. And so we think that this affected the nanotube uptake. Yeah, because of the division is a kind of survival. So yes. now when you are pushing to this direction, it's totally different and we can make a hybrid based on my understanding. Uh, and one more question, paracellular or I mean, uh, which pathway it might choose in a cell-to-cell -cell communication, intracellular or how it's going to be? So do you mean how the nanotubes will... Yeah. Well, um, later, if you want to just imagine oh. in a cell-to-cell -cell communication. It, it would probably be both. So at least, so if I'm going to model cell-to-cell -cell communication as cell-to-electrode communication, because um, if, if we're talking about charge transport, that might mean like transferring electrons from one cell to another instead of electrons uh, from a cell to an electrode. And I think it would be both. So if we use, for example, if we use the data that we saw with the DNA-wrapped nanotubes. So the DNA-wrapped nanotubes do not go inside of the cell, but we saw that we can still produce more electricity than without any nanotubes, which means that there's an extracellular contribution. Uh, but we also saw that when we use lysozyme-wrapped nanotubes, so these are nanotubes that can go inside of the cell, we saw even more electricity generation. So that means that there's also a contribution from inside of the cell. So if we, I would imagine that the cell-to-cell -cell interactions will be, if we model it based on what we see with electricity generation, that means that we'd get um, contributions from both signals coming inside of the cell, as well as signals that are being um, exported outside of the cell. I hope that, that answers the, the question. I wasn't sure. Thank you so much okay. for answering all of these questions. And thank you, Katerina, for inviting such a guest to, to the room. Thank you, Dr. Shah, for, for, for the questions. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, we're almost going an hour and a half. I'm not sure if anyone has maybe a last um, question or so. And... Um, and then we'll let um, Artemis go to her back to her life work. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I agree. This 
I, I really enjoyed the, the discussion between the, the, the two of you. So uh, it's really interesting and I'm really looking forward to learn about, um, you know, when the paper comes out um, to read your paper um, about the proteins that you chose uh, to, so that you can get around to not have nanotubes, <clears throat> a constant nanotube supply. Um, I know you probably, I don't know if you want to answer, but did you um, think of using microtubule expression basically? Um, that would come to my mind, I don't know. Yeah, that was definitely a prospect. Uh so we ended up using actually uh, another uh, technique, actually inspired from Shawanella. So we, we work with E. coli. Everything we, we try to do with bioengineering and cyanobacteria, we first do with E. coli because E. coli is much easier to deal with. And actually, we have um, a paper on uh, bioarchives so already posted on um, E. coli that's uh, under, under review. Um, and we translated that um, into cyanobacteria, at least parts of those systems. Um, so it's not microtubules, but they're based on um, the the pathways, MTRABC pathways that we see in Shawanella. So these are proteins that are uh, that are sitting in the outside membrane and also in the periplasm, um, and it's a pathway in, in that way. So that that's the direction that we ended up going with with cyanobacteria. Well, interesting. I I have to go ahead and check the bioarchive to read it um and um the, so the the other question probably um some people would have is what's the um, how much electricity let's say can we produce in a liter or something i guess they are in you know in some sort of liquid so um so so how much how much do we need basically to let's say in the future produce some some electricity let's i don't know like how many kilowatts what how many liters do we need maybe yeah that's an excellent question actually that's so thinking about scale up so in terms of this technology so whenever we try to engineer uh we're not limited by the liters so this is the advantage of biomaterials is it's super cheap you know it's i could make you know, gallons, tons of this stuff, the bacteria will divide. We have entire lakes that are filled with cyanobacteria. What's limiting is actually the surface area of our electrode. So we have a lot of these bacteria, but we don't have enough electrode surface area to take all of the, the charge. And usually we're limited by the bacteria that are close enough to the electrode uh, that can diffuse and provide electrons. So the, the main, so I could even have, I could produce enough from just a, a single liter to so let's say in theory, power a cell phone easily, but I'd be limited more by the surface area, how much of the electrode I could put in. So I could put in plates and plates and plates of high surface area electrode to extract as much charge as I can. Um, I think the main question, though, a lot of the challenge though, when we try to talk about these technologies and compare them to photovoltaics is the question of efficiency. Um, you know, there's always, you know, watts per square meter. And again, this is more limited by, by the electrode surface area, but in terms of overall efficiency, so if we want to compare apples to apples in our device in terms of per square meter versus a photovoltaic device per square meter, we're still below 1% efficiency. So uh, assuming that um, 
you know, in terms of uh, how much surface area we need. Uh, and again, the question is what you're trying to power and how much space. Uh, think in terms that we will need about, uh, you know, at least 30 times as much surface area, 20, 20 to 30 times as much surface area, I guess, depends if you're thinking of the high, high value um, photovoltaics to be able to power the same amount as a silicon device. Um, and so this is the, the main limitation of, of the technology is the efficiency. But this is where, you know, if it's just a question of surface area, okay, if you need 30 times more space, but at the same time or 20 times more space, depending on, on what you want to or what device you're comparing it to, um, then in the end, but you know that this is actually also taking up CO2 at the same time. Uh, you know, the question is the trade-off. If, if space is not an issue, then this technology could already replace these photovoltaics. If CO2 is more of a pressing issue, or if you're, you have, a, then, then this drives the ability to be able to use this um, even, even with that. So rather than saying um, how much volume of liquid, maybe the one way to think of it is how much surface area do we need? and comparing that to the photovoltaics. So this is at least how I try to think of the problem. Um, and in terms of implementing it, uh, that's kind of the perspective that, that we've taken so far. So would you kind of design a space, like a lake type of system? Like how <laughs> would you implement this like into like a structure, like city or or, you know, maybe away from the city, like where would you put these? We, we actually wrote, a, I just wrote a, a grant asking for money to help me figure this question out. Uh, right now, the state of the art would be to kind of model, um, use, there's already microbial fuel cells. And actually people already use cyanobacteria, but for biofuel production for others. So this is available in industry. And the current approach is that they have kind of like a, one approach is like you could imagine a tube. So the cyanobacteria rely on light. So we can't just have a giant bucket of it. It would be much better to have small tubes that are kind of form this kind of like a wavy snake so that we could have that kind of go back and forth. You could think of like a toaster, the wiring of a toaster where you have this high surface area, or you could think of your heat, like the heat that you have, um, the radiators where you kind of have this high surface area. Cyanobacteria, you can imagine something in a tube that's kind of had this high surface area so that we could absorb as much light as possible. If we have it in a giant bucket, only the top layer will absorb the light. So, and then inside of this tube, you'd have kind of the electrodes snaking through it. So this would be kind of the easiest way to try to model this. If you want to maximize the light absorption and try to get electrodes to extract as much electricity as possible. Um, but we envision, though, what we want to do is to actually get this in a solid device. We want to translate this to be as close as possible to existing photovoltaics to make the implementation as intuitive as possible. And so one proposition we have is actually converting, uh, creating a substrate that the bacteria can grow on on a solid surface. And this is possible. I mean, you see moss green films growing on things outside on stones on steps you know it's a it's a hazard it's slippery can we allow this green stuff to grow on something that's like a gel um that's flexible and this gel at the same time is very conductive so it could take the electrons so what we want to do in the long run is to create some sort of a a film a mat that you could just roll onto the rooftop to be as similar to what you see with current photovoltaics 
So for me, this is the dream is a solid state material, not so much of a liquid, but we need additional research to translate, to transform the liquid materials into something that's more solid. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, that would be really cool. Uh, Frank, you on mic? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, so the, I, I have uh, uh, one more question regarding the, uh, the materials, the uh, carbon nanotubes that you use in your lab that uh, you mentioned. I, I mean, there are uh, the semiconducting and the metal ones. So for um, the application, say in enhancing the uh, uh, photo uh, current, uh, is it uh, particularly better for one kind of, uh, versus the other, or or you just uh, uh, have been focusing on one type of the carbon nanotube? So, so that was actually a question that we asked ourselves as well to understand the mechanism. So we believe, so our hypothesis is actually the metallic nanotubes are doing all the work. We So there's two contributions. The metallic nanotubes act as wires. So it's really good at taking electrons out and conducting them through the outer membrane. The semiconducting nanotubes have an additional contribution. So there's been another study where they work with chloroplasts and they found that semiconducting nanotubes can do uh, some sort of can promote photosynthesis. And, and one hypothesis is that it absorbs light and then it transfers this energy to the photosynthetic machinery and it can help produce more, more um, electricity through this enhancement factor. Um, we think, uh, you know, just based on the energetics of the system, this is not likely to be a very efficient system because the light that, for example, one mechanism is that it absorbs light, it emits lower energy light, and this lower energy light um, would somehow power electricity. We, we believe it could be converted by the photosynthetic cell to produce electricity. The lower energy light, um, it's much harder because um, it, the light that it emits is at a lower energy than the light that these photosynthetic organisms normally absorb. So they'd have to absorb more than one photon so of, of low energy light to make up for the higher energy of light that it needs to, to do the water splitting reaction. So uh, we believe that uh, based on this, although this is a possible mechanism, um, it's more likely that uh, the enhancement we see is from the metallic nanotubes that are very good at conducting electrons, or at least that might be a larger contribution. And so uh, using purely metallic nanotubes will help. And in theory, we could do this using multi-walled carbon nanotubes. So multi-walled carbon nanotubes, uh, pretty much all of them are, are all metallic. So we could have a higher proportion of metallic nanotubes to further enhance the either the efficiency of the cell or basically use a smaller amount of nanotubes to achieve the same outcome if we use only metallic nanotubes based on this hypothesis. Okay, that, that's uh, very interesting. The uh, regarding the 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 length of the uh, nanotube that's been uh, take taken up, the is there a, a clear like a division of uh, or like how long are is there a distribution on, on because uh, why uh, I'm thinking of you know this uh, carbon nanotube can be uh, used as a cargo 
deliver cargo right it's a uh, therapeutic uh, device and uh yeah so have you uh so for for this uh, particular bacteria i i would assume there's a size dependence yes so in terms of size dependence you mean of of the cargo no i mean in yeah so in the uh the, it's so the bacteria will favor uh, ah. I mean, uh, the, 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 the distribution of the lens of the, the uh, nanotubes. Yeah, you, so, so I, I, I do see you have a slide uh, uh, showing, showing us the, the longer ones uh, is uh, less likely yeah. uh, to penetrate. But uh, uh, what, is there a measurements? Is it easy to, to measure the, uh, to get the data? So to quantify, so it's true that when we when we incubate the the nanotubes with the cell, so the nanotubes that we're normally incubating has a mixture of length. So even the ones where we actually say short nanotubes, long nanotubes are both there's a distribution for sure. Um, in terms of quantifying it, what we can do, and this would be kind of a bit of a exhaustive, and I think my 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 PhD students and my postdoc, my team is already really mad at me for all all the measurements that they've already done for, for this paper. But, you know, if we wanted, but we could do it in theory would be, we could take a uh, bacteria and then at different time points, so incubate it with nanotubes of uh, different lengths. And then at different time points, we just kind of take the bacteria, kind of just freeze it out at that spot, break it open and look at the length of the nanotube. So we could do centrifugation, uh, try to extract the nanotubes, and then we could try to image the nanotubes with AFM and get average uh, lengths. This is just off the top of my head, something we could do. And at different time points, so we could see that at what time point, what the distribution of nanotubes lengths are inside. So it's certainly a measurement that we could quantify over time, but one that I think my team would be very upset with me if I asked them to do it. <laughs> yeah, so so this, uh, <laughs> of course, this is uh, because the direction uh, it's, it's very promising so that's a you know there's so 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 many variables so for uh, biological side and biology side and also the material side so are there other like nano dots or other systems that maybe in the near future would be your interest say uh, carbon, so far we have uh, uh, c60 for example <laughs> just just you know going wild with the possibilities so we haven't looked so much in that. So in terms of, we like the carbon nanotubes. So one mechanism I didn't mention is nanotubes, another reason why they go inside the cells may not necessarily only be because of the charge, but their aspect ratio. So there's been some studies that show that the nanotubes act as kind of like needles. Uh, the high aspect ratio allows them to kind of poke holes in the outside of membranes. And we believe that this factor contributes to getting the nanotubes inside. And one to give you, to support that hypothesis, so we did measurements where we added lysozyme without any nanotubes. And although the lysozyme is enzymatically active and you know has the same positive charge that allowed the nanotubes to go inside, without the nanotubes, they didn't go inside. And so actually the high as we believe the high aspect ratio of the nanotube helped allow us to deliver the lysozyme inside because it kind of allowed it to poke through the membrane. Um, so if we switch to something more circular like C60, um, uh, or, uh, you know, graphing quantum dots, we won't have that aspect, that piercing aspect that allowed us to go inside. Um, and another reason why we like the carbon nanotubes is this fluorescence property. So there are quantum dots that give off near infrared fluorescence, 
but these quantum dots, so even if I do get them inside of the cell, usually they undergo photo bleaching. So we shine light on them and the fluorescence goes down over time. What we really like about nanotubes is that they're photostable forever. You could shine a laser on them and you don't see any decrease in fluorescence over time. So this is neat if you want to do long-term or if you want to do continuous measurements. So it may be possible to get these other materials inside. Uh, you know, even if we could, it might be difficult if they're not high aspect ratio because we believe that the high aspect ratio of the nanotubes allow them to poke through. Um, but if we could deliver these other nanomaterials inside, uh, you know, then uh, the question is, uh, you know, the advantages, disadvantages, um, the fluorescence properties, if they photo bleach, might not be an advantage. But some of these nanomaterials, for example, nanosuria, um, could be used as a kind of like a therapeutic. It, it scavenges reactive oxygen species. So nanosuria allows us to, so if the cell becomes very stressed, it, I mentioned under high light conditions, for example, it might take more electrons than it can handle. So then it starts damaging these proteins and it forms what we call reactive oxygen species. It starts to react with oxygen and these species are so reactive, they start attacking all the cells' proteins and, and the bacteria ends up dying. Uh, if we could deliver other nanoparticles like nanoceria that can um, help protect the cell against this kind of damage by actively scavenging for these oxygen species that would otherwise attack the proteins, this could be an interesting application using another kind of nanomaterial which we'd have to figure out how, how to get inside as well. Yeah, I, I had the idea what, when Frank asked this question that is probably very far-fetched, but would there be a way, you know, we can store information in, in DNA and stuff. Um, would there be a way while you're producing electricity to use these as um, storage devices for... Um, Mm -hmm. you no know, data or maybe even processing some data uh actually yes and it's not so much of a far-fetched idea and it's not just only processing data so there's already been some groups um i believe i have to read more cl uh, more closely the paper was it uh, i i think uh george church lab or george whitesides from so from harvard where they where they use a uh, dna for for storage um, we're actually thinking about using cyanobacteria for energy storage. So what's nice about cyanobacteria versus photovoltaics, so one of the bottlenecks, so this was another advantage, uh, photovoltaics, you, you get electricity when the light is on, you don't get electricity when the light is off. What do you do at night? Um, and, you know, people say, okay, you could store it as a battery, you could store it as a capacitor, and both of these have their advantages and disadvantages. You know, batteries are slower, you, you know, charging a battery takes a long time. A capacitor you're also limited uh, by the stability um, and and so uh, a, a good alternative that people use is fuels so we like using fuels you know there's hydrogen methanol ethanol because fuels store can store electrical energy in the form of chemical bonds and whenever you need to extract it so this is the idea of a fuel cell um, is that you could take electricity by breaking you know certain bonds and forming new bonds um, What's nice about cyanobacteria, it, it not only has the electrical capabilities to extract electrons from water, in this case, from chemical bonds, but it also has proteins in the metabolisms that allow it to store electrons in the form of chemical bonds that you could use later, so you could form fuels this way. Uh, we've started to also do a nanomaterials approach. So we started interfacing the cyanobacteria with um, certain polymers that can store charge so that polymer also acts as a little battery. 
so we've kind of already work started moving in that direction uh, precisely in terms of electricity storage. But in the long term, we're interested in uh, other kinds of storage, for example, fuel storage. And this is uh, something that would be really neat to do. Um, in terms of data processing, this is a bit outside my area, so I wouldn't know as much uh, into this area. But I think given at least some some of the wacky science you mentioned, people have done that. They've stored uh, you know, data in DNA. Um, I don't see any reason why we can't do that with cyanos. Yeah, it would be great because there's so much CO2 um, footprint is so large from all the data we store um, in, in the cloud and so on. So that would be, you know, really amazing. It doesn't really matter if we need 30 times more, you know, um, because surface, because I think we can store a lot of data in uh, in the DNA, like it's it's quite efficient uh, way of storing data. So that would be, I think that would contribute a lot to you know uh, decreasing the carbon footprint. Um, and then in the chat, Aya asked, uh, would it be useful to add antioxidants to inhibit the ROS? Maybe. Yeah, that's exactly uh, interesting would be to, to add antioxidants to inhibit ROS. And actually during my, my PhD, I explored that a little bit. Uh, so I mentioned nano uh, nanocereal, so that's an antioxidant. It, it specifically scavenges for uh, the reactive oxygen species. Um, and we saw that this in fact did help with the um, viability of the cells under stressful conditions. Um, we did some additional controls also where we saw so that nano Syria, we saw even Syria. So this is um, Syria that's not in the nano form was still able to do this as well. So this is actually something that would help. I agree. It's a great idea. Then uh, before I, I know Joyce and John joined, but and I know you probably need to go. But uh, we had the room here a while ago. Uh, the first room we had with Mike Levine. Uh, I don't know if you know him with the Xenobots. And their approach when they did the replicating ones um, was to use, um, he collaborated, uh, I forgot his name, with the professor from Berkeley, where he used evolutionary um, algorithms um, to basically design um, the, like, the, the shape and the size and so on of these xenobots so they would be the most efficient for replicating so are you using this approach to in the future like increase efficiency maybe like just evolutionary genetics uh, algorithm approach to basically you know model it first and then um, and then just use the the ones that come out of it so we are using this idea of, so to summarize, so this idea of genetic algorithms, machine learning, they work really well when you have a lot of data, a lot of measurements, uh, and you're trying to find patterns. Um, so for example, if I had, uh, I was trying to get, trying to find all the wrappings or the best wrappings to get nanotubes inside a cyanobacteria, if I could wrap the nan nanotubes with like thousands of different wrappings, get data on which wrappings worked really well, which ones didn't work well, and then use machine learning to predict which wrappings will give me, will 
to design, to predict and design a new wrapping that will allow my nano to, to go in cyanobacteria, or similarly to design a wrapping that will allow my cyanobacteria to produce more electricity. Um, so for this particular project, we haven't done that work because, I mean, usually this works well when you have a ton of data. And so far we only look at handful of wrappings, 10 different wrappings. It's not enough for a machine to extract any patterns. And, um, but what could be, and even the biophotovoltaic measurements, that's even lower throughput. So to get these measurements, we have to do many reproducibility measurements. They last, you saw several hours go on for days, just a week, just to test out a single wrapping. Um, but we do use this approach for another project that we're working on with optical sensing, where we um, wrap nanotubes with different DNA sequences. And we try to find which DNA sequence on the nanotube allows the nanotube to react with a certain chemical. So if you want to detect uh, you know, glucose for people who have diabetes or uh, neurotransmitters, so for people who have Parkinson's disease, we want to make an optical sensor that could detect these chemicals. And it turns out that different DNA sequences could detect different chemicals, but there's no way to predict which DNA sequence is going to detect which kind of chemical. We started using machine learning where we wrap the nanotubes with all these different DNA sequences, and then we try to look for patterns as to which DNA sequence will react with what kind of chemicals. So we do use this approach, but for a totally different uh, application, a different Absolutely. problem that we have. <laughs> Actually, if I might say that if you're using the, for example, nanocomposite, I mean the kind of, uh, yeah, nanocomposite that they are mostly using, you're going to push it to the AI, you know, it's going to happen automatically because it's, it's going to go to the optimization and it can be a best way for yeah, so I think everything, I agree that I think everything in the end would be solved through through AI. What's limiting is uh, feeding the AI enough data. So we're not so much limited by AI, but we're limited by getting enough data for the AI to start to think. So it's also the case of, you know, we have this, you know, this discussion I had with the panel. Um, I went to this uh, at uh, WIPO where they talked about the digital wave. And the digital wave is a fact that we can now process a lot of data. We could start making predictions. Machine learning could start even replacing human thinking. But to do this, we need to have initial data for the machine to learn from. And so we're still at the stage where right now, we're still trying to collect enough data, look at enough wrappings, look at enough measurements to feed to the machine to be able to start to learn. Um, but I completely agree that once we, we meet, you know, these pretty much for all of research, I wouldn't be surprised once you have enough data, you know, the, the dream would be that this could be taken over and we could extract patterns more efficiently through, through AI. Great. Um, John and Joyce, do you want to have the last questions? I know Artemis is probably never coming back. <laughs> we told something about it's, it's It's a fun discussion. <laughs> okay. Uh, Joyce, John, did you have one last question? Yeah. <laughs> Um, in my mind, the nanotubes uh, are foreign materials uh, inside the cyanobacteria. So the bacteria must have uh, some kind of mechanism to destroy these uh, nanotubes. So I don't know how long these nanotubes can survive within the bacteria. And uh, is there any way that we can See, add some, see, like a selection pressure 
for the bacteria to keep the nanotubes. Because, uh, well, when we're doing those uh, plasmids uh, uh, research, yeah, and we always put a uh, resistant gene on the plasmid, so the bacteria would survive only with the plasmids. Mm, so I was just wondering if we could decide on such a um, survival benefits within the nanotube, so nanotube could survive that better. I don't know, just some kind of wireless thinking. Yeah, so actually, um, so the first question on stability, uh, if the nanotubes get degraded, we actually have the opposite problem. The nanotubes that we have, like, they just won't get degraded. Um, so we use, uh, we call pristine nanotubes. So these are nanotubes that don't have um, chemical functional groups on their surface, uh, like carboxylic acid groups. They're just, it's um, just pure carbon, uh, sp2 carbon. Uh, they're just carbon bonded to each other. So these these carbon-carbon bonds are actually very not reactive. Um, and so when they go inside the cell, so there's already been some measurements where they put the nanotubes inside, inside the cell. And when these carbon bonds are not, you know, they remain pristine, so they're just bonded to each other, um, they actually don't undergo um, significant cell degradation over time. They stay very stable. And it's actually been a bit of a concern environmentally that these nanotubes just hang out there and don't degrade. Um, so it's actually, we have the opposite problem where they stay, but for this particular application, that, that's a good thing. Um, to address your second question on selection pressure. So uh, this actually touched upon something that, uh, and so we're also working from your experience. So you talked about the plasmids and having resistance. So we also had similar concerns because we're also bioengineering our bacteria. Um, how do we know that the bioengineered bacteria that producing more electricity is going to be more favorable, more selected over the bacteria that doesn't extract, doesn't produce electricity. And the condition that we envision is actually highlight conditions. So I mentioned that by allowing these bacteria to produce more electricity, we're giving it a new path to dissipate extra energy. So when there's too much light, this path is very useful because it has a way to get rid of this extra energy that would otherwise damage it. So it would be more competitive than bacteria that cannot uh, effectively dissipate this extra energy. So the selection pressure in this case would be, if we have bacteria that have the nanotubes, they'll be able to out-survive the bacteria without the nanotubes because they're much more efficient at dissipating all the extra energy, whereas the other bacteria doesn't have these nanotubes to help it dissipate this energy. So it becomes more damaged and it's less competitive. So actually highlight conditions would be the, the mechanisms that not only maximize current production, but could also be used to select for bacteria that can more effectively produce electricity, in this case with nanotubes, over the ones that don't. I hope that answers the question. Great. Um, wow, Joyce. that's great. <laughs> Thank oh, you. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, Joyce, do you have a last question? Well, um, just real quick, uh, did you talk about whether do you see this as something like you make a big electrical generation plant filled with vats of this uh, microbe or applying it to your roof or, you know, what do you see as the most practical near-term possibility? Thanks, I'm done. Yeah, we kind of answered the question earlier, so okay. um, I don't know if you want to say again, Artemis, but- Well, I, I could just, just summarize. I think the actual, application I see. So 
the big thing is between, you know, having vats, fields of this stuff, putting it on the rooftop or using it to power your phone. Uh, because base, it's, the question is always on the efficiency. So based on the efficiencies we have, so they're lower efficiency than the current state of the art in the market, but they obviously have additional advantages of being greener, being cheap. And so right now, based on these efficiencies, they're probably best suited for kind of large field uh, industrial uh, solar energy collection. And maybe on the brink of being able to go on rooftop depends on the size of the rooftop and your power energy needs. Not so much for portable devices because they're still too low efficiency and you need a large surface area to be able to harness enough energy to power these kinds of devices. And of course, the move towards uh, going to more portable or smaller surface areas is going to be very strongly coupled to the increase in efficiencies that we get. So the increased amount of power that we could generate per surface area. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, this was such an interesting talk and discussion. It was really exciting. I'm so glad you came um, because, um, yeah, I think your work is uh, fascinating and amazing. And I wish you all the best and all the funding and, um, um, you know, the smartest people. But you seem to have the already very smart people. So, um, and uh, yeah, if you want to come back with updates um, when you publish the paper with, um, with the protein um, and, and also biosensing or sensing, I feel always free to come back. It was such a great discussion. This was wonderful. And I think the feedback uh, from people that wrote me as the same. So, um, yeah, thank you so much and please enjoy your weekend. And sorry that we took so long, <laughs> but it was too no, interesting. It, it was, it was a pleasure. Actually, I really enjoyed the discussions and questions. And, you know, you talked about, you know, crazy science about storing, uh, you know, information. Actually, that's exactly what we want to do. I mean, these are, these are the ideas that we, that inspire our work, right? So there's crazy science is, is, is my, as far as I'm concerned, the only science that matters to me. So I think it's a, it was a real pleasure. So, and also thank you all for your comments, questions, ideas. And actually, I'm going to revisit this room again because in the chat, there's a lot of great uh, resources that I think would be very helpful. So, so I appreciate, uh, appreciate the discussion as well as the, the resources and ideas from the chat. So thank you all. And thank you for working on this. It's such a huge, important problem. Thanks so much. It's exciting. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, so I agree. Thank you, Artemis, and thank you everyone for coming, participating, sharing things, asking questions. Yes, and, same uh, appreciations. It's a very typical of MIT, by the way. Thank you. And um, if you enjoy rooms like this, we actually have a room later. Um, I couldn't, like, we kind of um, went to a double uh, room day. Uh, Dr. Liu um, with his professor is coming from the British Museum, like not coming, but online from the British Museum. And um, they talk, they will talk about their recent paper, um, how ancient Chinese mythology was more complex than we used to think. Um, I think it will be a really interesting uh, discussion about archaeology and uh, history of um, 
art history, um, which I think is also really interesting. And tomorrow we'll have um, Dr. Uh, Yiting Wu. She's actually in the audience. She's currently working at Neuralink. Um, and she will talk about the, the paper uh, that came out when uh, she was at Northwestern uh, about new optogenetic um, and um, achievements like technology developments she did. So thank you, Yiting, to be here, for being here. And uh, yeah, we're excited to hear your talk too. And uh, yeah, thank you everyone. Thank you, Artemis. Uh, hope you come back one day and um, enjoy your weekend. Happy Friday, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye, everyone. You. Bye. Three, two, one. Bye, everyone.